What happens when one young man learns how to spot wolves in sheep's clothing? How do you win over your megalomaniacal boss? Each month at Hopewell Theater, questions like these are answered. When a rotating cast of some of the most hilarious and moving storytellers around take center stage and tell all. Recorded live at Hopewell Theater in Hopewell, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this really happened. Welcome, my name is uh, Joey Novick and welcome to This Really Happened. I love spontaneous applause without any prodding. I think that's wonderful. Uh, just by applause, how many people have been to one of our shows before? And how many people uh, have never been to the show? So it's everybody else. I didn't want to do the math. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, so uh, those of you who have uh, never seen storytelling before, what this is is uh, four true stories, stories that uh, plus mine, five stories of actually things that actually happened. For those of you that have seen The Moth, seen The Liar Show, been to our show before, that's really uh, what it is. Um, we have... Um, after the show, we have a feature called Two Minute Tales, in which people are invited to tell their story up on stage. I know, woo, is that incredible? I mean, for example, at a movie, do they let you show a movie? No, they don't. Like after you watch Star Wars, you go, hey, I got a movie. No, they won't. We will give you two minutes on stage to have you tell your own story if you want to, which is, I think, pretty damn good if you ask me which is not bad. You're all staring at me, so I guess I'll get started with the uh, story. So I am a uh, stand-up comedian by trade. I've done stand-up comedy for probably 30 years, but my very first gig after doing stand-up comedy in New York City was a road gig in Jackson, Tennessee, which is about an hour and a half west of Memphis. So I get a call about two days before this gig. My agent calls me and says there was a uh, cancellation at this club. Can you be down there in two days? And of course, I bark yes to getting 300 bucks and being on a 14-hour bus ride from New York City and playing Jackson, Tennessee. So after a 14-hour bus ride, sitting next to some very smelly people where we stop in Philadelphia, we stop in Washington, I change buses in Atlanta, I go up to Tennessee, I am told that I'm going to be picked up by a guy named Mickey the Midget. I'm not being politically incorrect, I'm just saying that's who I'm, I'm told on my little note before email, before cell phones, that I have to wait at the bus station. So, a little person comes up to me and goes, Hi, I'm Mickey the Midget, as I wouldn't know, because he's the only one there who's like, you know, very short. And he says to me, I'm the one who's going to be picking you up, taking you to the uh, hotel, taking you to the gig. And I have, uh, he takes me in his truck. So, he puts on two blocks on his feet, sits in this seat that is very high, and he begins to ride, telling me every disgusting, dirty joke in the world that has to do with black people, Puerto Rican people, and of course, Jews. And as I laugh a little bit, I don't laugh at the first two jokes, but I kind of like giggle at the Jewish joke. And he goes, oh, you laughed at the Jewish joke, so you must be a Jew. And I said, well, yes, I am. And he drops me off at the club, and I meet the club owner, and the club owner is talking to Mickey in the corner for about a minute or so, and the club owner says to me, so, Mickey tells me that you're a Jew from New York. And I said, uh, yes, I am. And he goes, well, we only have one rule here down at the club. 
You're, uh, we don't make any jokes about Elvis or Jesus Christ. And I'm thinking, look at the order that he put them in, the king, then the king of kings. So I, um, part of my job that first night was to host the open mic night, right? So I am there, I'm hosting the open mic night, I finish my first maybe five or ten minutes, and the mic stand is this high, and the first act I have to introduce is Mickey. Now, I feel really bad because I just want to call him, you know, Mickey Comedian or Mickey, but I have to introduce him as Mickey the Midget, right? So the microphone, so what would you do? Tell me, if the microphone is this high, the microphone stand is this high, would you lower it for him? Right? That's what I thought. I lowered for him, and the moment I lowered for him, he looks off stage and he goes, what are you, a fucking idiot? You keep the microphone high for everybody else and you keep it low for me? That ruined my... He was yelling at me from off stage. And like then he did his set. And afterwards he like gave me hell for doing that because he says, my opening, you ruined my opening joke because my opening joke is when the microphone stand is high, I look at it, then I look at the audience and they laugh. You ruined that moment for me. So I go on, okay, I feel like a moron, I'm an idiot. So the next night is Thursday night. He is actually hosting the show and I get up and I do my set. So what I do when he comes back on stage after my set, what did I do? I, I left it up, which is exactly what I'm figuring I'm supposed to do at this point in time. So then he yells at me again for not being nice enough to lower the microphone stand. So I can't win with this guy at all, and I'm thinking, I cannot believe my first week at this very important comedy club where I am supposed to, I want to get rebooked, is being ruined by this guy. And he ha he's going to be giving me a lift home, to, and a lift back to my hotel. So we get into the truck. I get into the truck. He puts the blocks on his feet. He gets up on the seat. And he goes, well, how would you like to go out to a bar? And I go, no, I really would just rather go back to the hotel. No, no, let me take you out for a drink. It's a very special night at this very special bar. So we go there. I open it up. I open up the door, and there's a, a flyer that says Midget Night. I walk in there, and I'm the only tall person in the room. There's like 40 little people in the room. And he starts yelling, goes, yeah, this is the guy, Jew from New York who fucked up my set the other night. And I'm being yelled at by little people. And I'm trying to be politically correct. And, and Mickey says, yeah, and he won't even say the word midget. And he goes, yeah, the other, he won't say the word midget. He won't say the word midget. Come on, say the word. I know I'm not. He goes, yeah, oh, great. The big Jew won't say the word midget. So, you know, I felt really badly about this. I bought him drinks. I'm buying him drinks. I just want to go back to the hotel. He gets a little drunk. On the way back, I realize that I have to drive. So I'm sitting in the chair. I'm sort of bent over. I can reach the pedals very well, but I'm sort of bent, and I drive maybe about three miles. I make a wrong turn. I, we get pulled over by a cop. The cop comes over. I roll down the window, and the cop says, oh, hey, Mickey, how are you doing? He knows Mickey. Mickey introduces me, and he says, oh, you're the Jew comedian from New York. <laughs> you realize that in this town, we only have one rule. We don't make fun of Elvis or Jesus Christ. And I just say I heard, and I went back to my hotel. So thank you. Yep. And by the way, I did get rebooked at that gig. 
but Mickey was not there the second time I was there. So, you guys ready for our storytellers? So I want to bring up our first storyteller, a very, very funny guy. Uh, David Yu is a Brooklyn storyteller who overcame his fear of public speaking by taking a storytelling class about seven years ago. And uh, he has been a Moth, Grand Slam, Moth Story Slam winner, and he shares his stories on the Moth, Moth Grand Slam, the Risk Podcast, and Story Collider. Please welcome David Yu. Oh, there he is. Keep it going. Keep the applause going. Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. So going to school in the Bronx during the early 90s, everyone was like into like baggy jeans and oversized t-shirts. And I felt like really awkward because I was the only one just wearing crew neck sweaters and beige corduroy pants from the Salvation Army. I know I was ahead of my time. <laughs> but kids are hating on me because my shit wasn't smelling like teen spirit. So one afternoon, my sister took me to the village. It was an artsy neighborhood in Manhattan, and I remember when we got out of the train station, the neighborhood just smelled like bohemian body oil and overcooked pretzels, and everyone walking around had like moppy silver hair and their black turtleneck sweaters and dark framed glasses. They all looked like Andy Warhol, and it was quite a culture shock, especially when I saw a bunch of skinheads walking by us eating bagels. The only time I ever saw a skinhead was always on Geraldo. And we ended up at this clothing store called The Unique Warehouse. And we walked in and the place is just covered in graffiti. And I see this kid walking by and he has on his like Nautica crew neck sweatshirt, light blue baggy jeans and just like high top Nike sneakers. I was like, wow, I want to just be like him. Then the next day, I'm walking around school with this oversized white t-shirt that says like Philly's blunt across it, these light blue baggy jeans, and these like white high top pony sneakers looking like a homeless astronaut. <laughs> and this kid walks up to me and he says, yo, that shit is mad ill. Where'd you get that? That shit is mad ill? I'm not sure what he's talking about, but I look like a deer in headlights. And the first thing I said was the village. And he's like, word. And I felt good that day. And I just stopped going to school and I started hanging around the village. And every day I see that kid around a unique warehouse, just looking really fresh with his like polo crew neck sweatshirts and his like baggy blue jeans. And I really wanted to talk to him. And what I do is I take a deep breath and I walk up to him and I'm like, yo, that shit is mad ill. Where'd you get that? And he gives me a dirty look and he says, I stole it. You got a fucking problem? And I'm like, word, and we became friends. <laughs> his name is Josh, but he called him Adobe. And every day I'm hanging out with Adobe and his friends around a unique warehouse. And we go to Washington Square Park and smoke weed while listening to Cypress Hills. It was like insane in the membrane. And one day they invited me to go clubbing with him on Saturday night. But the only problem is I'm only 14 years old. And Adobe digs deep inside his pocket and he pulls out a fake ID. And this is Adobe, 25, New York University. And that afternoon, we go across town to the West Village and we end up at a smoke shop and I paid $5 for my first fake ID. I'm like standing in front of a rack full of porno magazines. My eyes are like bloodshot red 
my head looks like a fuzzy Q-tip. And I have this huge earring in my ear that looks like showering for a curtain. And on the fake ID, which I paid for $5, it said, Dave, 25, Harvard Business School. <laughs> Adobe and his friends actually looked out for me and made sure I looked fresh every day and smelling like weed. But mom and dad just weren't too happy because I'm coming home late at night looking like one of the castaways from Gilligan's Island. Saturday night, I'm getting ready to go clubbing. And I remember my mom and dad, my sister walks in, and he sit me down. And he's telling me that, you know, we just found out you're not going to school anymore. You come home late at night with an attitude. And we really want to know what's going on. And I'm like, you know, what do you mean what's going on? And she said, because you're hanging out with the kid Adobe. You know, God forbid he ends up beating up and robbing you at the end of the night. And I'm like, you know what? That's bullshit. Fuck all of you. And that evening I got grounded. I'm pissed off and I'm just like determined to go meet up Adobe and his friends to go clubbing that night. So what I do is I wait for my folks to go to sleep. And I take one of my sister's stuffed teddy bears with one eye missing. And I put it under the sheets on my bed. It looks like the Incredible Hulk is sleeping in my bed. And I sneak out that evening we end up, and I end up going clubbing with Adobe and his friends. Afterwards, they invited me to go get pizza. So I remember we're walking through the projects. It's actually dark, it's damp, and it's cold. And we're laughing and giggling. And his friend just pushes me. And I push him back. And all of a sudden, his friend shoves me. And I just shove him back. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? And suddenly, I get hit in the back of the head. And everything just fades to black as I fall to the ground. I immediately regain consciousness when I'm in a fetal position right now. And it feels like I'm being pelted by rocks. And it just feels like the surge of pain just going through my body. It feels like a bad dream, but I think I'm going to die tonight. And suddenly I hear this loud noise coming from the background. And there's a siren. It's getting louder and louder. Woo, 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 woo. And they all take off running with 40 bucks from my pocket. 40 bucks? Is that what a French was really worth? I end up getting back home that evening, and when I turn the lights on in my bedroom, I can't believe what I see. My sister's stuffed teddy bear with one eye missing, just sitting on top of my bed, staring at me. It was something straight out of an Edgar Allan Poe novel. And I turn around, and it's my mom and dad, and he walk away. The next morning, Mom and Dad doesn't say a word to me. They make me breakfast and they give me a box of bandages. My mom and Dad were not just my parents, they were like my guardian angels trying to protect me, but I was just too stupid and selfish to understand. And today, Unique Warehouse is at NYU Bookstore, and that club is a high-end condo somewhere in Tribeca. Although I never got accepted to Harvard Business School, I learned a really valuable lesson that evening that an MBA education would have never taught me. Never choose your friends based on the, on the clothing they have on their backs because they're just merely wolves in sheep's clothing. Thanks. Wow, first jobs. You were a Harvard Business School grad and I uh, probably the same time I was in Hebrew school. So, um, you know, I was reminded of another road gig. 
I became a regular road comedian after that first gig, and uh, I guess about a year later, I was driving down. I had my fill of taking buses, and I was driving down to another week of comedy of one-nighters in Alabama. Okay, now very easy being a uh, Jewish person in Alabama because all my mom had to do is put on the, to, it was very easy to get mail down there because all my mom had to do is put on the envelope, Jew, Alabama, it would come to me, <laughs> which was very cool. So I'm driving down, I get to the hotel, and I'm asking where this one-nighter is, and the guy behind the counter says to me, oh, uh, what you got to do, you got to take the road up here, make a left turn at the lot, make a right turn at the big tree. Uh, you, you'll see a, a, a cro railroad crossing, go across the railroad crossing, and the comedy club is right next to the Italian restaurant. So I get in the car, I'm driving down, I make a left turn, right turn, I see a big tree, make another turn, turn around. I'm driving up and down this uh, main road for probably about 15 minutes, I don't see anything. I stop at another gas station, and the guy says to me, oh, well, you just missed the comedy club. What you gotta do is turn around here, you're gonna go back up, back over the railroad tracks, you make a left turn, make a little U-turn there, and you'll see the comedy club right next to the Italian restaurant. So, I do that again, I'm backing around, I'm going back and forth, back and forth, and I, by this point in time, again, before the era of uh, uh, cell phones and, uh, and the internet, I am just going absolutely crazy, and then I pass by, realize, and I pass by the same place about four times, what they were calling the Italian restaurant was a pizza hut. And the comedy club was right there. So uh, that was my second gig. The life of a stand-up comedian on the road is uh, very elegant and uh, very professional. So I'm going to bring up your next storyteller, a good friend of mine. I, he works uh, all over the storytelling uh, world in New York City, produces a lot of his own shows. Uh, he was just on This American Life. He uh, just produced a documentary that was shown at Sundance. And he also has written a book called Meet the Deplorables. Uh, please welcome Harmon Lee. Hey, give it up for Joey, everyone. Let's hear it for Joey. Thank you. I am Harmon Leon. If you're not familiar with me, I'm a man whose fashion sense and style have often and frequently been described as alcoholic scarecrow. Thank you very much. Thought I'd say it before you think it. Like Joey mentioned, I have a new book out called Meet the Deplorables, Infiltrating Trump America. I know that's kind of ballsy, putting the plugs before the story, but the story is actually from the book. Um, the premise of the book is I went out undercover for a year, infiltrating Trump supporters all through this great land of ours. That's very much, thank you very much. Uh, and this is actually a story from the book for you people here tonight at the Hopewell Theater. So, looking up at this huge video marquee outside the Grand Sierra Casino in Reno, Nevada, and I see the blazing words, another lucky winner, Carol S. This is accompanied by a large image of a smiley old woman that trumpets to ordinary people just like you and me, that if you come inside, it is possible to strike it rich. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, well, the security guard here hates me, says Brian, a chubby guy with a cherub face as I climb inside his massive red tow truck, ready to ride shotgun. As I strap in, Brian confirms, last time I was here, yeah, the security guard kicked me out. Well, understandable, I say. 
It's probably not good for casino business to have patrons' cars repoed right from the parking lot while they're inside gambling away their monthly loan payments. Yeah, well, it sucks, it's unfortunate, but someone's gotta do it, says Brian, who's been legally stealing people's cars for the last four years. Brian tells me after graduating college with big dreams of becoming a school teacher, life took a turn when he realized he was in debt it could make much more money working as a repo man. Plus, a perk for Brian, as he adds with a sly smile, it's not every day you get to drive up to someone's house and take their car. Sure, sure, the money's good, but working as a repo man does have its drawbacks. I've had two guns pulled on me and an axe says Brian, <laughs> an axe, I repeat, with both curiosity and safety concerns. Yeah, says Brian, an axe. Brian tells me on his first night working as a repo man, he was hooking up a car on a ranch in the middle of nowhere when all of a sudden a big drunk angry guy came running out of his house screaming, swinging an axe. Fortunately for Brian, very fortunately, he diffused the situation, but adds the understatement about the scenario. You can get in a really bad situation fast. Now, if that wasn't enough to scare away any sane person, on his second night on the job, Brian came face to face with a guy he describes as drunk as shit, who came storming out of his house, waving a gun. Yeah, he was screaming, you're not taking my car, you're not taking my car. He was doing this with his gun, says Brian, miming for me a gun being held to his head. Brian adds the second understatement of the evening. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this after that. <laughs> I, I, I know exactly how you feel. I mumble, pretty darn sure that this is the dumbest thing that I've ever done, but no time to think. That's it, says Brian, pointing to a Chevy Silverado in front of a rundown house that's guarded by a large dog, an ominous keep out sign. Oh man, I knew this guy was gonna live down here. Last week on the phone, he said to me, fuck you, I'm not paying, and you're not taking my Chevy. <sighs> yeah, <sighs> all this for a 2006 Chevy Silverado piece of shit. Chubby Brian jumps from his tow truck as heads suspiciously look out windows, and he moves at four times his normal speed, hooking up the Chevy with Repo Man Ninja proficiency. Within mere moments, an angry mustached man with it wearing a white beater t-shirt comes storming out of his garage, screaming in Spanish with fire in his eyes. That's the guy, says Brian, as the screaming man runs directly towards us. That's the guy who told me to go fuck myself. As the Silverado's lifted off the ground, the screaming slowly dies down. I mean, it's pretty apparent the battle's clearly lost. As a final gesture, the disgraced man removes the license plates from his vehicle, a souvenir from of his fallen American dream. Do you, do you think the guy will pay to get his car back? I asked Brian afterwards as the Silverado clanks behind us and I sort of feel like crying. Nah, says Brian. It's just a gut feeling. 
Deep into the night, we drive farther and farther from the city, deep into the belly of rural darkness. Our next stop, Stead, is located near a power plant next to a large empty field where you might occasionally find a corpse. We got a doubleheader, announces Brian, breaking the silence between songs on the classic rock station. Almost with delight, he says, two cars at the same location, a Yukon and a Trailblazer, adding, both of them are gonna go. We slowly turn into an isolated neighborhood, quiet, dark, silent, families huddled in comfortable homes. The only sound is the low hum of the repo man tow truck. There's the Yukon, blurts Brian, pointing to the vehicle in front of a two-story house that's littered with toys. And there's the trailblazer, adding once again, both of them are gonna go. We park the tow truck as Brian calls his coworker, Jared, for backup as adrenaline pumps and my palms sweat and knots twist in my stomach because we're about to legally steal these people's cars in the middle of the night using tactics that real car thieves would employ. It's no wonder that people come running out of their houses waving guns and swinging axes. Do, do you ever get nervous? I, I asked Brian, breaking the thick silence. No, just antsy. I just want to get this car so I can go and get a fucking another one. I mean, it probably won't go over well. They'll probably be real fucking pissed. I mean, they could be the nicest people in the world, or they could be world-class motherfuckers. We'll soon find out in five minutes. Now we wait. Jared finally arrives with his dog riding shotgun in the passenger seat. As the silent, quiet neighborhood is now filled with the foreign hum of two Repo Man tow trucks. Like two pros, Brian and Jared within minutes have both vehicles off the ground as lights are flipped on and a frantic pudgy woman comes running out of her house in tears. Honey, they're taking the cars, both of them. She screams into the cell phone as the silent neighborhood now rings with the sound of heavy sobbing. Our payment's not due to the 26th. Our payment's not due to the 26th. She pleads as Brian and Jared empty the contents of the vehicles into garbage bags, baby dolls, toys, a child seat in between heavy sobbing. It, 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 it's not the end of the world, Brian calmly assures the woman in between sobs as he shoves another handful of baby dolls into the garbage bag. But I'm freaking out, I'm freaking out, says the woman, turning to me to plead her case, not knowing what to do. I stare down at my shoes as the Yukon is clamped down, and then the trailblazer. As the final remnants of baby dolls is stuffed into the garbage bag, the woman suddenly breaks into a crazed, awkward laugh. We want to come for the trailblazer, she says twice. We're 10 payments behind. More laughter, more tears, more tears mixed with laughter. Stead just got bitch slapped, Brian says afterwards to his dispatcher as we drive away like just any other guy doing his job during life during wartime. All in all, says Brian, who once had dreams of becoming a school teacher, 
It's been a pretty good day. Yeah, no, no guns, no axes, just a Hiroshima bomb of depression racing through me as I realize not everyone in the world is another lucky winner. Not everyone in the world is another Carol S. The end, thank you. Keep going, Harmon Leon. Thank you. So, um, we're gonna bring up our next storyteller. Uh, again, a good friend of mine, I met him on the storytelling circuit. Uh, he tours uh, most of the year. He's got uh, nine solo shows that he's been touring around uh, the country and around the world. Uh, he has been named best of, um, uh, best of the festival in uh, storytelling festivals and theatrical festivals around the world in Ottawa, London, New York, uh, and many, many fringe festivals. Uh, put your hands together and welcome a good friend and an excellent storyteller, Mr. Martin Dockery. So uh, it's, a, it's a really uh, bright, like sunny, uh, blue sky, uh, early morning in late October. And I'm walking down this uh, country's half with an old man. Uh, no idea how old he is, but safe to say he's old enough that no one ever again will say of him that he looks young for his age. <laughs> and he's got this weathered face. He's uh, got this like really flat, wool cap on and like so many layers of clothes uh, that I don't imagine uh, he has the time of the day to take these layers off anymore. And that perhaps he just gets a new layer every year that he applies like paint upon the previous layers. I Meaning that if his age ever does need to be determined, perhaps we can just use the same method we use when determining the age of trees, right? So uh, he's showing me his town and he's, he's like, hey, that, that's where the, um, the Normans live, and that's where the McBrides, that, that's their house, that's where the Birches are, uh, that's where the Troilos are. We've got a whole bunch of their, and the truth of the matter is, we don't really know what he is saying, uh, because we do not share a single common word between the two different languages we speak. Not that you would know this if you were like a third party observing us from afar, walking through his village, the two of us looking as we are fully immersed in the same conversation, which energetically we are, because I get what he needs to tell me right now. He needs to tell me the stories of his village, because he knows, and I know, that in a few years, he's not gonna be here anymore, and when he goes, so goes all the memory of this village. This village, which in this old man's lifetime, used to be the home of 1,000 people, but which today has a population of exactly two. This old man named Ivan Ivanovich and his wife. Two of us arrived at um, a dilapidated house which is the adjective we use to describe every single house in this village. There's a fence, and Ivan can't get it over, uh, open, rather. And so he's uh, explaining to me about what I need to do to get it open, and I'm responding to him in English. We speak the same language in this moment because we get this little fence open. There's a great moment of cheer between us as we then walk up the uh, front path of this house that's completely overgrown, as is the house itself. And we go on inside the house, and it's completely empty, just four rooms. 
Uh, the only thing inside the house, because all the furniture has been removed, is a big oven that is in the living room, which is either where they cooked all their foods and or survived the harsh winters of northern Ukraine. And the only other thing in here is along the walls, there are these framed photographs just leaning against the walls. And he goes down and he picks one of them up. And then he just begins telling me the story of the people in this photograph, who I assume are the people who used to live in this house. Again, I have no idea what he's telling me, but I can feel the urgency within him to tell me these stories, even if I do not understand them. Because even though I have never walked in this man's shoes, I have spent so many hours imagining what it would be like to walk in his shoes. I spent so much time imagining that one day perhaps I will be this man. This man who is the last man standing in a village after the apocalypse. Now I grew up in the 1980s. I was a teenager then. Uh, and I was like all teenage boys, really, really into science fiction. I think if you uh, were a teenage boy who was not into science fiction, then perhaps that meant you were the alien, you know? And uh, particularly I was into stories that had to do with the end of the world. Like any story that had to do with like mass death, that's what I wanted, you know? <laughs> Viruses, aliens invading, everybody like, having to be subservient to apes. That was my favorite, man, you know? And I think particularly this type of storyline resonated with me because it was the 1980s, because it was the height of the Cold War. And I knew then what everyone knew then was that at any moment, everything I knew and everything I loved could just disappear in this blinding nuclear explosion. And suddenly, what had been fantasy would be my reality if I survived, that I would be the last man standing at the end of the apocalypse. I think the last time I ever like, cried to my mother, you know, the last time she ever come into my bedroom and sit on the edge of my bed and stroke my hair and tell me something she couldn't have known was true herself, that don't worry, we will not die from a nuclear war. And uh, I don't think what my mom realized that I wasn't so afraid of dying, I was afraid of being the last man left, which wouldn't mean just like sort of having to sit in my house, no, it meant that how having to be on the run from the invisible monster. The invisible monster who was unleashed by a nuclear war, right? This monster you cannot see, touch, hear, smell, or feel that lives in the woods, <laughs> and if it somehow finds its way into your body, will rewrite the very genetic code of your cellular system, right? Radiation. And of course, kids are perhaps more susceptible to stories about boogeymen, right? You know, and adults will be like, oh, you shouldn't be afraid of something you can't touch or see or smell or hear. It's okay, little boy, you know? But try telling that to the 1,000 people who used to live in this village. Try telling that to the 50,000 people who used to live in the city on the outskirts of this tiny village. This city called Pripyat, which was built in a heartbeat in 1970, out of the woods and the rock of the northern Ukraine. A city that was built to show the rest of the world what the Soviets could produce when from scratch they made the perfect city, inside which people would live the perfect Soviet dream. 
so that everything in the city, when it was built in 1970, was gleaming and new. Had all the latest amenities and hospitals and police stations and schools, and a huge amusement park. All the shelves uh, and the grocery stores in this city were filled with products, unlike many of the other places in the Soviet Union. This city of 50,000 people, which was built to support and be supported by, to be in a symbiotic relationship with a brand new nuclear reactor. A nuclear reactor which the physicists who made that reactor guaranteed the world was the best nuclear reactor that had ever been built. So good, they guaranteed 100%. Nothing could ever go wrong inside this reaction. There's no way this thing can ever blow up. We're so confident with ourselves. We do not even need to build a containment building over this reactor like we have here in the West. Like there's no way this thing can blow up. And you know what? Even if there were something to go wrong in this reactor, we have all these backup safety systems that are 100% guaranteed to take care of whatever problem might be in there. And I mean, you do the math, right? 100% guaranteed backup safety systems plus 100% guaranteed reactant. That is 200% guaranteed. That's 100% more than you need, right? It's amazing. You know, but you might be out there right now wondering yourself, like, how did they know for sure, right? That these were all 100% effective, you know? And if you indeed are thinking that, then you think very much like nuclear physicists in the Soviet Union in the 1980s who were also wondering like, man, how, 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 how are we so sure that this is absolutely guaranteed safe? That like, well, the only way to really find out is just to do a little test on the reactor itself, to make something purposely go wrong in this nuclear power plant that is running just fine, and then sit back and watch how the backup safety systems will be affected. By the way, if you don't realize it yet, this story that I'm telling you right now is actually a story of the stupidest thing people have ever done in the history of telling. If you ever hear somebody be like, wow, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of, they'll be like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you the story of the nuclear physicist in the north of Ukraine who took a perfectly functioning nuclear power plant and decided to make something go wrong in it. And decided to do this test at one in the morning when the night shift is working. And whether you're the night shift working at a nuclear power plant in the north of Ukraine, or you're the night shift working at a 7-Eleven in Buffalo, New York, same employees. Okay? Exactly the same, man. It's not exactly the cream of the crop. Nobody wants to be there. And on top of it, they don't even tell anybody they're doing a test. They figure, you know, better to do something and then have to say sorry than ask permission and be told no. So they do this test, and they only do the test for one minute, one tiny little minute. They make something go wrong, you know, and they only run it for a minute, and then they stop running the test after one minute. And you know why they stop running the test? It's because after one minute, the entire reactor exploded. It just blew the roof right off of the reactor. The people in that 
city of 50,000 people in Pripyat described uh, the scene as something quite beautiful. That out of the top of this reactor, there was uh, an iridescent rainbow shooting up towards the sky. These people of Pripyat having no idea actually that it was a geyser of radioactive material that was just continuously erupting out into the air. And you can imagine the managers in this nuclear power plant, who I think the silver lining is that, you know, that at least they could say that their little test was conclusive. You know? <laughs> now they didn't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that perhaps it is better to ask permission and be told no <laughs> than to do it. And then after a death, like, Sorry, you know, which they did not even say. Sorry, you know, uh, you might wonder, oh my God, what did they do? But you know what they do because they did the exact same thing any of us do when this happens to us at a very small personal level. They've got this nuclear power plant which has built up this huge head of steam and it exploded in this release of gas. Well, they did the exact same thing when we all accidentally find ourselves releasing gas. <laughs> It's the stupidest thing, but it's what they did. They literally just pretended it wasn't them. You know, they literally were like uh, hoping that like the whole thing would just clear and that nobody need know otherwise and everything's just gonna be fine, right? And I'm like, when we accidentally break wind, this is a non-stop release of radioactive. You know the first people in the world were to notice that something got wrong here at this power plant? Sweden. Sweden doesn't even border Ukraine, right? Sweden, which was all up in Sweden, just minding its business, being Swedish, just everybody's sitting around, you know, doodling pictures about a better put together furniture, you know? And all of a sudden they look up and they see a bucket, like, oh my God, this huge cloud of radioactivity, like, where did this come from? And finally the Soviet Union was like, all right, it was us, we did it, you know? Which is three days after the accident, three days during which they had not told anybody in the city of Pripyat. Three days later, in which finally, the Soviet Union gets their act together and sends a whole fleet of buses into the central square of Pripyat where the army then gets out and tells everybody, I'm sorry, hey everybody, I know you're going about your days, you're doing all your thing, but you all right now, you've got three hours to go home, get your papers, uh, come back here, and we're gonna ship you out, I'm sorry, but to some temporary housing. Don't worry, you will be allowed to come back. But what they neglected to tell the people is that they were, when they used the word temporary, they were speaking at a geological time scale, which is how you talk about things, when you talk about half-life radiation, meaning you can come back to your apartment in a few thousand years, you know? So all these people have been shipped off these high-rises, you know, and are now actually finding out what it is to live the perfect Soviet dream except for Ivan Ivanovich and his wife, who are like, you know what, no, 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 we, 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 we enjoy our life back there. And so they sneak back in to this huge area, 30 miles in every direction outside the nuclear power plant known as Chernobyl, uh, now called the exclusion zone, this no man's land where no one's allowed to come back and live for like, nobody actually even knows how long. But Ivan and his wife are like, whatever, man, we're just gonna go back and live there. And so they do, they sneak in, nobody notices, and by the time anybody has noticed, they're like, you know what, okay, fine, you stay there, but this is on you guys, all right? No one else is allowed to come back in here. And now it's 30 years later, and Ivan is showing me his village with a certain desperation inside of him that I recognize as him being aware that time is short for him on this planet. And so he wants to tell this town story literally to anyone who will listen. 
and I have ears, I'm able to listen, even though I do not understand anything he is saying as we walk in and out of different abandoned houses. And he's telling me these stories that frankly are hilarious. Not that I understand the content of them, but he is laughing at the end of each one and laughter is infectious. So I find myself laughing as well along with him as he's just walking through this town. It's beautiful because it's early morning and there was a frost that morning. And so there's all the dew has crystallized. So everything is shimmering and, and, and just absolutely beautiful and pristine. Uh, we go uh, at the end of the village, this little stream, there's a little bridge going over it that's completely collapsed. We're able to pick our way across it. And you know what he points at? He points at a beaver dam. Now, I don't know out here in, in, in New Jersey, perhaps you're used to beavers, but I live in New York City and have lived there like my whole life. It was the most exotic thing I've ever seen in my life. This little the house made by the beavers and the, the logs with their teeth marks in it. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. And obviously he's saying it's amazing too, even though I don't know what he's saying, but we can feel what we each mean. A little bit past that, we see a fox running through the woods. The day before this, when I've been walking through Pripyat, that city of 50,000 people now completely abandoned, as I've been walking through their schools and through their hospitals, I'd seen incongruously running through a square a wild horse. We get to the end of this village, and we finally arrive at his house where his wife is waiting, and my tour guide is there as well, because you cannot just go to the exclusion zone in Chernobyl all by yourself. You have to have a tour guide and be as part of a tour. And so the other two people on our tour, the two German guys, are there as well, taking pictures and whatever, as Ivan then brings me around his house, brings me to his little pet pig, which is not little by any stretch of the imagination, this big, fat, pink, fleshy pig, and I pet the head of that pig. And for me, it's, it's a moment of, I've never connected with a pig. My only connection with pigs is not pretty. It has to do with mayonnaise and bread, you know? But for this moment, I'm like, wow, you're a real live animal, right? Like, here you are, you're living here, and you're looking at me in the eyes, and I'm made to understand that Ivan takes the manure from this pig and uses it to fertilize uh, his fields that he tends. He makes all his food himself, save for the food that tourists like myself bring him. We brought him this bag of canned goods and like olive oil and all these things. And, and he's just showing me all around his house until finally my tour guide's like, we, 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 we kind of got to move on. Uh, is there anything you want to ask Ivan? I can, I can translate for you. And on the one hand, like, I don't really want to ask him anything, because I don't really want to break the illusion uh, that we have not been fully understanding what each of us have been saying, even though I know that he knows I do not speak Ukrainian. Uh, and so I just say, I say, well, yeah, sure, I've got a question, you know. What's it like being the last person in your village? What's it like knowing that when you're gone, all of this, is gone too, because that's all reality is. It's just the stories we tell ourselves, right? So this question is translated, and then Ivan, he laughs again, right? Because everything's funny. And I'm told back through uh, the translation, he says, uh, all of this is mine. Every single house we've been in today, it's, it's my house now. All this land is my land. I, I, I own all of this now. And so I say to him, 
laughing also. I'm like, so I guess, I guess that makes you the mayor of this town, right? You know what I mean? You're the last one left, you're the mayor. And whatever the word in Ukrainian is for mayor gets translated onto him. And then I can just start saying that word again and again while laughing uproariously like it's the funniest thing he's ever heard. Which of course makes me laugh, because who doesn't like being the person who has said the funniest thing that somebody else did, right? <laughs> And then we get back in our four by four, shake Ivan's hand, and we drive off, leaving Ivan and his stoic wife standing there. The two of them, who maybe today in 2019, uh, because this happened in 2014, maybe today are actual ghosts. I don't know if they're still alive. Actual ghosts living in a ghost town on the edge of a ghost city in this huge no man's land, this area where nothing thrives and nothing grows and nothing lives at all, or so they would have us believe from all the stories that I heard in the 1980s that I consumed of science fiction, all of these stories that kept me up late at night, none of them ever suggesting that perhaps it's possible that in one iteration of this story, there could be a man who would be the last one standing at the end of the apocalypse, and nonetheless, who would retain his sense of humor. Thank you. Martin Dockery. Yeah. Just a journey to another land. Wonderful. So, um, our, um, I just want to remind you a couple of things at the end of our show. Uh, for those of you who would like to uh, tell a story, um, I will still be here. And uh, people have told some really great stories at, uh, uh, in, in our two-minute tales. So, I want to bring up our um, final storyteller on our schedule is, um, oh, he's a writer and performer of the off-Broadway monologue Life in a Marital Institution, 20 Years of Monogamy in One Terrifying Hour, which is a New York Times critic pick. Uh, he's a very, very funny guy. And please welcome uh, Mr. James Brawley. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I have a newfound admiration for you, Martin. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I felt before. Uh, uh, thank you so much, Joey, for uh, having me out here. Um, so, my first job uh, at a college was as a staff writer for a motivational meetings production company in New York City, uh, writing motivational meetings and speeches to motivate corporate workers to work harder for their corporations. Now, personally, um, I had never been motivated. Uh, until my sixth year of college. <laughs> and uh, I distrust corporations instinctively. I learned growing up from my family that whenever you see two or more people gathered together for a seemingly common purpose, at least one of them's deceiving the other. But uh, this was a job, uh, and it was writing theater, a kind of theater, for uh, corporations on Third Avenue, uh, which was close to my dream job of writing theater for people on Broadway. So uh, I said yes, and that night after the interview, I had a nightmare. And I woke up, 
and I couldn't remember what it was. I just knew I was trying to tell myself, do not take this job for any reason. But I don't listen to my nightmares any more than I listen to my dreams. Um, I don't listen to myself, which it turns out makes me perfectly qualified to motivate others not to listen to themselves. Uh, chocolate workers in white smocks and hairnets who are terrified they're going to get one of their fingers lopped off in the giant blenders that mix the chocolate, which is a slowing down production of the chocolate bars, which is a problem. Uh, so I motivate them to work through their fear by uh, staging a uh, Olympic-themed um, award show called Gold, Go for the Gold, uh, likening chocolate workers to uh, Olympic athletes, uh, some of whom have done their best work with nine fingers. Uh, uh, personal computer salesmen from IBM who thought they were going to get crushed by Apple and were thinking about uh, quitting their jobs and starting a new career, which actually would have put the company out of business sooner than it went out of business, which I motivated them to ignore uh, by staging a uh, motivational meeting uh, featuring the first woman to sail around the world alone without stopping, uh, which turned out to, to be a lie, which she admitted to me in a drunken input session, um, along with the fact that half of her vessel uh, contained alcohol, not food, uh, because she was a, a high-functioning alcoholic. Uh, two details I airbrushed out of the motivational meeting called First Lady. Uh, a uh, hospital sales supply company whose will to live was crushed when they found their new product uh, that they were going to sell was anal wipes, uh, which I sold back to them to motivate them to sell it uh, using a, a kind of jaunty little jingle set to uh, Edelweiss. <laughs> anal wipes, anal wipes, each prepackaged and sterile. Uh, seven days and seven nights a week. This is what I'm writing. Until uh, late one night, I'm sitting in my office alone as usual, two or three o'clock in the morning, uh, the only guy in the office, when unannounced, the president of my motivational meetings production company walks into my office and walks over behind me and puts his hands on my shoulder like the, uh, the barber in Sweeney Todd before he slices the guy's throat. And he says, very creepily, you work hard, don't you? And uh, <laughs> I say yes, you know, it's three in the morning, uh, not knowing where to look, because unlike Sweeney Todd, there's no uh, mirror in this barbershop. And you want something to show for your work, don't you? And uh, I do. He says, I have a plan, he says, not a dream. Dreams are for losers. Right? I know, I hate my dreams. I have a plan. Are you in? And I say, yes. And he says, all right. I am going to pay for you to see every show on Broadway. Right? And I knew I'd get to Broadway. But you cannot look at the stage. What do I look at? You look at the audience. And when you see them laugh or you see them cry, then you look at the stage and you write down what you see and you come back and you tell me. And then he leans in really close so I can smell the beer and the sushi. He's a Japan freak. And he says, never forget, the audience is your master. And a few nights later, I'm on Broadway, looking at the audience, looking at the stage, taking notes. Uh, because I'm a very dutiful employee, um, as well as paranoid, I figure that he sent somebody to look at me, looking at the audience, looking at the stage. And uh, 
Six months of this later, the main thing I've learned is that audiences don't like you looking at them, looking at the stage with uh, taking notes. Um, and midpoint uh, through the year, the company has its annual party. This is my first wheel around the cycle. Uh, it's uh, our own internal motivational meeting or kind of Broadway show almost that's staged in the president's bachelor loft in Soho, which has been emptied of all personal objects and replaced with uh, props that he's either rented or brought from Wisconsin to make it look like the farm where he grew up. So rented hay bales, fence posts, stuffed cows, uh, cheddar wheels and bratwursts and beer, but nothing that tells you about who lives here. The only personal objects are a framed photograph of the atomic bomb exploding over Hiroshima and above that, a shelf of books by and about members of the Third Reich. Inside the Third Reich, the rise and fall of the Third Reich, Mein Kampf. And uh, so I'm looking at the atomic bomb and reading the shelf of books with my head cocked when the president of the Motivational Meetings Production Company walks over holding a can of Wisconsin beer and says, do you know who Goebbels was? And I say, yeah, he's Hitler's minister of propaganda. Goebbels used symbols to manipulate large numbers of people to think the same thing at the same time. It's the same business we're in, James. Study him. And he knocks back the beer and walks off. And the lights go down in the bachelor loft and a rented pin spot hits a rented hay bale. And the president jumps up on it and says, ladies and gentlemen, welcome home which is the theme for the meeting, and a pennant drops down behind him from the ceiling with the words, welcome home. We're gonna begin the evening by giving it up for the man of the house, the man whose efforts are responsible for all of us being here tonight, the last surviving member of the crew of Enola Gay, which dropped the atomic bomb. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for my father. And another rented pin spot hits this 85-year-old dude in the corner in military dress blues and one of those weird hats with the jangly pins on it. And he makes his way through the rented cows and the fence posts and up on top of the hay bale with his son. And they salute each other. And his son says, welcome home, dad. And his dad steps down. And the president of the company says, ladies and gentlemen, my father was the best in the world at what he did, just as you are the best in the world at what you do. And that's why this time next year, we are all going to Hiroshima. And everybody starts cheering like they actually want to go to Hiroshima. Uh, only on a B-52 or a scheduled air, 747 instead of a B-52. How are we going to afford to go to Hiroshima? Through the efforts of Barbara, the best account executive in the business, and Peter, the best producer, and James, the best writer. And now everyone is clapping except me, because I know those two are not the best in the business, and I may be the worst. Right? I just graduated from college after six years. But uh, that doesn't matter, because the president is the best in the business at his job. And this is not a party. It's a party rally. We're in corporate Nuremberg. So the next morning, I go into my uh, co-worker's offices uh, to talk about the party, and I say, you know, he asked me to be his Goebbels, and if I'm Goebbels, who does that make him? And just in case they don't connect the dots, I think the president of our motivational meetings production company is a megalomaniacal Hitler wannabe. And uh, a couple of days after that, I get invited to the vice president's office, Goering, who says, 
you're fired. And I said, you can't fire me. Everybody in the company likes me. Everybody, she says, except the most important person. I never said a word to him, I say. She said, you said plenty to others. And they told him, well, I am one paycheck away from being on the street. Well, you should have thought of that, about that before you called the president of this company a megalomaniacal Hitler wannabe. They said that, you said that. You can't fire me without a second chance. It's against our goals and values, which I wrote. I'm the staff writer. <laughs> and they're laminated in a poster on everybody's wall. Go home, she says, tell no one. The next morning at dawn, the phone rings. It's Goering, meet me at the Bean. It's just a little coffee shop across the street from our office. So I'm sitting there as she walks in and sits down and says, I'll give you three weeks to turn it around. Three weeks to make him like you. And I will be really interested to see if you can change his mind because I can't and I'm sleeping with a guy. <laughs> and if he still hates you in three weeks, you're fired. So I go back to the office and I walk into the uh, little uh, cubicle of John the Baptist, the only guy in the company I can trust because telling tales is against his religion. And I tell him what happened and I ask him what to do. And he says, reverse the polarity. And I say, what does that mean? He says, use the forces of evil as forces for good. Ah, you can have the truth, he says, or you can have your job. And I want both. So I walk back in to every single one of those offices and I say the same thing. You know, the president of this company is the most amazing salesman I have ever seen, which is true, it's totally true. This guy sold more Electrolux vacuums and Fuller brushes as an undergraduate than anyone in the country. And I've already told them about the megalomaniacal Hitler wannabe part, they can make up their own minds. And a few days later, after that, it's Friday at five o'clock, the weekly staff meeting. New business, new hires, and the employee of the month. And the president steps up in front of the conference room, in front of the whole company, and tells us about new business and new employees, and then finally the employee of the month. He says, a young man who represents the ability to grow and to change, he represents the best this company can be. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for our staff writer. And he motions me to stand, and I do, and everyone's clapping for me, John the Baptist, Goering, the Gestapo, right? whoever they are, and the president, who's locking eyes with me, right? having proved in the end, he was totally right. The audience really is your master. My master, but his master too which is kind of depressing, but as I start to think about it, motivating. Thank you. James Brawley, thank you so much. <laughs> Wonderful. So we've heard good stories tonight about uh, a, a nuclear uh, place and also uh, uh, Germans, I guess, or Nazis. So uh, can we have a hand for all of our storytellers uh, tonight? Harmon Leon, David Yu, James Brawley, Martin Doggerty. <clears throat> and now... <coughs>
I'm still trying to get over cold here. So a couple of announcements. Our next storytelling show is uh, March 8th. That is uh, one month from today. Uh, we also have some great shows coming up. If you check our website, I have to say we have some really outstanding uh, storytelling shows and some storytellers that are coming. Uh, a very uh, wonderful storyteller by the name of uh, Gastrar Almonte, who appears regularly on Comedy Central, is going to be doing his show. I think the date, uh, Skip, Skippy, the date is May 31st. Is that the date? For Gastar, uh, I've worked with Gastar. I'm studying with the same person Gastar studied with to write his uh, solo show. I highly recommend him. Uh, also, uh, there's a stand-up comedy that is here. There's more storytelling. And uh, so if you're not on our email list, please get on our email list. So you can find out all the shows. Uh, do you guys have a good time tonight? Do you enjoy the show? Excellent. I appreciate that very much. Uh, again, let's have a hand there. Everybody was on a show. David Yu, Carmen Leon, Martin Dockery, and uh, James Brawley. Um, my name is Joey Novick. I want to thank you very much for being part of our uh, show this evening, and thank you for uh, supporting live storytelling. For more information on This Really Happened and other programs in our selectively eclectic lineup, please visit HopewellTheater.com.